0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 464. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. And you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, uh, uh, You'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey, everybody. It is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. And... Um... Just a couple quick bits of news. My the 2019 Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive registration has been open for less than a week, and we're already half full, which is amazing, good news. But there still are a few um, early bird slots left, which is a significant discount off of the regular price. So um, it's not until June. You still got quite a ways here. It's only January to get your act together and join us. It's going to be killing four days and nights in New York City, learning and living uh jazz being involved playing with great new york players seeing gigs uh and and then just diving in learning the history and of course everything from the ground up uh technique and playing wise so it's going to be a great experience this is our fourth year uh every year is always fantastic uh and i hope you could be a part of it this year um I should also mention that um, in my newest newsletter, there's a lot of gigs already happening for 2019. It's only January. I've got about 75 gigs or something on the books already for this year. So go check out the gigs page. I'll be running around the country with uh, the Countess Luanne de Lesseps from Real Housewives of New York City. I know it's kind of nuts, but uh, if you uh, if you join my newsletter, if you get on my newsletter list, just send me your email I'll add you to it. Uh, you could see all the details as they emerge. Um, so anyway, onward and upward. Uh, it's 8 degrees in New York today. Yes, you heard right. 8 degrees Fahrenheit, which I looked for my international students. It's uh, about minus 12 Celsius. And uh, thankfully, I am leaving tomorrow to go to Los Angeles for the Nam show, uh, which is always a nice respite from the East Coast weather in January. So you may be listening to this in July, and you might be melting. Well, that's what's going on right now. Um, and uh, I just wanted to um, begin to share my topic for the day, which is uh, one of my favorite all-time drummers and a man that I would consider to be my first drum hero, uh, and the reason that I am a left-handed drummer today, uh, Mr. Ian Pace, and I would love to have interview avian on here interviewing him maybe i can actually do that uh but in the meantime i want to pay tribute because i believe that um although he is a fairly well-known drummer uh as you, as you probably know, he's the drummer for Deep Purple, uh, which was one of my first great early uh, influences as a, as a group, uh, influences me and my drumming style to this day. But um, I think a lot of people just think about Smoke on the Water when they think of Deep Purple, maybe uh, Highway Star or Space Truckin'. Uh, and they don't really understand just how important of a drummer Ian Pace is, how influential he is. And um, and this is why I'm going to talk about him today. And I was going to do one of those, you know, five reasons why you need to know about Ian Pace. So maybe I'll try to do that, although it might end up being more than five. Um, and so my first reason why you need to get to know Ian Pace is because he... He was my first drum hero, and I'll tell you a quick story. As a as a, a young, impressionable nine-year-old growing up in Hawaii, uh, my best friend at the time was 12. Now, that's a pretty wide gulf uh, of being best friends, and at the age of 12, he was already way ahead of me in a lot of areas. Um, you know, Hawaii in the early 70s, mid-70s, was... Uh, pretty much a freewheeling zone. Marijuana was kind of everywhere. Not like it is today. Well, more like it is today. Um, You know, it it, it was sort of part of the culture growing up there. And he turned me on to the Green Bud. And at the same time, um, he turned me on to a lot of heavy music. I was... Uh, I had that, pretty much just had my parents' mostly musical taste. I was a big radio listener, which I've talked a lot about on this program, because um, we didn't have a television when I was growing up. So it was the radio morning, noon, and night for me. Um, but uh, Deep Purple really wasn't played on the radio, um, not until the rise of FM radio. And you know, a lot of sort of heavier groups were not played. You had to learn about Black Sabbath and, and other groups just from word of mouth, you know, Deep Purple Black Sabbath. Even Led Zeppelin, maybe you'd hear Stairway to Heaven or Trampled Underfoot or Whole Lot of Love. Those are the only songs I can really recall hearing by really heavy, heavy groups um on AM radio, which was the only kind of radio we had when I was a kid. So um my it was to my great uh amazement when my 12 year old best friend turned me on to some very heavy music. And I remember the, the four records he turned me on to were Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, uh, Aerosmith, Get Your Wings, which had some live tracks on it. Great album. Uh, uh, what was the third one? Um, well, certainly, uh, Deep Purple, Made in Japan. Oh, and Black Sabbath. Um, I believe it was probably uh, uh, paranoid. So uh, here I am. I I had grown up listening to John Denver and Joan Baez. My parents were folkies. They listened to classical music. um, And all of a sudden... In the space of a very short period of time, I'm getting turned on to all this really heavy music, uh, sort of right around the same time I was getting turned on to the Green Bud, as they say. So, all of that tends to go together, and I remember my friend Charlie, his name was Charlie, my buddy, we hung out all the time, showing me this album cover, uh, it was Double Live album, you know, the Double Live album with the with the fold-out jacket. And it was Deep Purple made in Japan. And I just remember I'd never heard anything like this. I loved every second of it. And I was already interested in drums at that point. I'd actually started taking lessons when I was seven. I was sort of, you know, snare drum and timpani and playing in the little elementary school band. Um, but my heart really went in the direction of of rock and roll. And I noticed this You know, this guy on the cover with these round glasses, uh, sort of oval shaped glasses, with these really long mutton chops and hair flying you could almost really never see his face because his hair was always in motion and i thought man that's really cool uh who is this guy and, I, and when i listened to the drum solo which was a tune called the mule they said yeah pace, pace so i thought cool ian you know in hawaii you don't know too many ians it's a very british name so the whole kind of spinal tap british fantasy starts to kick in especially when all these groups i'm listening to Pink Floyd, all those background voices on Dark Side of the Moon all have British accents, listening to Black Sabbath, and Ozzy has this heavy British accent. So you begin to associate all that great heavy metal music with with England. And uh, so... In any case, I used to, we used to sort of jam along and I, would, I had this wooden stool and I would play along with that. I'd play along with Ringo Starr. I would just hammer away on this trying to imitate the drums. So Ian Pace was with me from a very early time and, and um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about his history. Uh, and, you know, if you think I'm the only one uh, Lars Ulrich is the one who introduced Deep Purple into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Lars Ulrich from Metallica, so they were a big influence on him. Chad Smith is always yammering on about Ian Pace, uh, and, uh, and it, uh, he's done some drum jams with Ian Pace. And, I, you know, it was sort of like when you started to look around... At most of the rockers today, a lot of them listed Ian Pace as being one of their influences. But yet, when I was growing up, there were never any articles about him in the drum magazines. I never read anything about him anywhere. He was um, by nature a quiet guy. He didn't have the reputation of a Keith Moon or a John Bonham. He wasn't a band leader like Ringo Starr. So um, he was a mysterious figure. He always sort of kept himself, you know, he was the quiet guy. Uh, in the band and and was not, uh, you know, outspoken. He wasn't a crazy partier. So um, his drumming just did the talking for him. It's interesting, though, because, and I will talk a little bit more about this as I go, but um, I I later found out that, you know, Ian Pace grew up in, uh, he was born in Nottingham, Which is in, in the Midlands of England, right in the middle of the, of the, of the British Isle, the main British island. Um, but he at an early age moved south so probably nearer to London. And he grew up uh, in the 1950s playing his first gigs with his father's big band. So his father had an actual jazz big band. And when I learned that fact, it really drove home to me um, why his drumming style is the way that it is. And is. I'm going to talk more about his style. Um, you know, what I, what I liked about it was that it was very aggressive, it was very heavy, but it was also really smart. And there were a lot of drummers from that that period that had those characteristics. Uh, Ian Pace, of course, well, John Bonham, um, uh, Ginger Baker, Bill Ward from Black Sabbath, um, Mitch Mitchell uh, from Jimi Hendrix's band. You know, there, there were many, many British drummers. Of course, Keith Moon, that sort of—and and you think about Charlie Watts as well, that Charlie was a simpler drummer, but he was—all he, these guys grew up being influenced by jazz— Uh, by American jazz. And one day I'm going to do something on the British, you know, the evolution of British rock, because it's a fascinating story. I'm not going to get into it too deeply here. But let's suffice to say that um, after World War II, there was a heavy American presence in the UK, um, and even during World War II, because the Americans staged the invasion of Normandy and all of their uh, attacks on the continent, they'd staged them from England. So they had been in England for a while. And um, the Voice of America was on the radio. Uh, and interestingly, records, of course, when coming from America would always get to um, UK before they got to continental Europe. So they often had a better selection and were more well-versed on the music coming over from America, whether it was swing and jazz or uh, early rock and roll, rhythm and blues, Little Richard uh, type of stuff. And, you know, and Elvis, of course, and Buddy Holly and all that that came in the 50s, uh, in the later later 50s. So guys like Ian Pace grew up, you know, their fathers, Ian's father, had been influenced very heavily by the 1930s uh, big band music, uh, which, which was prevalent. And certainly as things drew closer to World War II, there was more of that American presence. You'd hear a lot of that music on the radio. So hearing Gene Krupa was very common, playing drum solos, hearing Buddy Rich. Uh, also, bebop had entered the scene. Uh, I've talked about John Bonham's influence, how he literally in his drum solos paid tribute to Max Roach, literally paid tribute to Gene Krupa. Um, so we think of these guys as rock drummers, but they really were highly influenced. Mitch Mitchell's favorite drummer was Elvin Jones, you know, post-bop, Um and you can you can kind of go right down the line. The other aspect of a lot of these drummers, and certainly Ian Pace was the case, was that with the idea of listening to jazz and being influenced by jazz, they were also influenced by the idea of free improvisation. And... Uh, This is an aspect of all this music of this late 60s period that I really like, is that live, these bands were trying to do the same thing that a jazz band would. Uh, Certainly Hendrix would go on long jams, um, you know, improvised a lot of technical virtuosity with these musicians, but they weren't afraid to sort of walk the line uh, between... You know, today you have a lot of technical virtuosity, but a lot of it is very, very safe and perfect and done to a click. And, you know, there's no chance of there being a train wreck. And um, the bands of the late 60s, you know, the Who, uh, you know, all, all these groups that that went on these long kind of jams, certainly uh, Sabbath and, and Hendrix and... Um, you know so there was many of them but these these are sort of the biggest names uh they really they really went for it every single show and so ian pace grew up in that environment and um he joined a, a band uh, you know, sometime in the in the very late 60s, <laughs> not sometime, but uh, uh, in 1968. Sorry, I was, I was hunting for the date. So, 68 is when he joined Deep Purple, which is a new band just forming. And Deep Purple had a really interesting chronology, I guess you could say, or not chronology, but and it, they, they were, they were, there was a lot of depth musically in the band. First of all, the guitar player was a guy named Richie Blackmore. Uh, many of you probably have heard of him. And in my opinion, Richie Blackmore wrote some of the, the greatest guitar riffs, memorable guitar riffs of, of all time. And a, certainly a lot of guitar players have written a lot of great, griffs, great riffs. Uh, of course, the most famous of Blackmore's riffs is Smoke on the Water, uh, which kind of upsets me, actually, because so many people that is all they associate with deep purple and it's sort of easy it's been made fun of over the years and and it lampooned um and so it's easy to just sort of you know oh ha 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 smoke on the water write it off but everybody knows it everybody today young millennials today know you know um that, I, I'm, not, I'm not really a fan of Smoke on the Water, because I've heard it so many times. I don't think it's Deep Purple's best song by a mile. It's certainly not a very um, demonstrative uh, example of Ian Pace's spectacular, uh, spectacular drumming. So I'm going to mention many more tracks today, and uh, of course, as in past, we'll hopefully get them up on a Spotify playlist in the show notes, so you can check them out yourself. Probably some of these tracks are not Things that, that you're generally familiar with So you might find this of interest um, So he's he he he's got this big band background He's influenced by a lot of rock and roll He gets together in a band uh, With a gentleman named Richie Blackmore Now Richie Blackmore, uh, the great, uh, he of the great riffs Has a very similar history to Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin He was a staple in uh, in the British rock and roll session scene in, throughout the 1960s. And if you think of, and again, I'm going to talk more about this when I do an entire show about the British um, music, you know, history of the British music rock and roll scene, because it's a great, great story. But um, Richie Blackmore was doing a lot of recording sessions during the 1960s. If you imagine the Wrecking Crew, talked some about that, and probably many of you know about the Wrecking Crew, uh, they were a group of younger studio musicians who were raised on rock and roll and understood the art form and could play it well. The earlier generations of studio musicians were all classical players, and when new young rock acts started to get signed in the 1950s and 60s, um, you know they were ill equipped to deal with the talent level or not the talent level but the type of music that these young performers were doing and Of course, at this time, you know it was very rare to have i 'm talking about the the uh, the late fifties and early sixties generally, you still had singers who would come in a lot of us are aware of bands that that were around, but in general you would you would have singers and Therefore, they would be packaged, the producer would put together the musicians and record them, and they would simply sing the songs. Um, so, Richie Blackmore was part of this cadre of young British musicians who were figuring out guitar sounds, you know, taking electric and rock guitar to the next level. Um, and uh, in particular, Blackmore had worked with a guy named Joe Meek, who was a very famous a uh, British producer who did uh, a song called uh, Telstar, which was a huge British instrumental rock hit. Uh, I'm getting, I'm going into this direction where I shouldn't be, but let's just suffice it to say that Richie Blackmore had a lot of experience in the studio working with a lot of artists. He was an excellent, excellent guitar player and a very highly skilled technician and craftsman. Now, in addition to Blackmore and Pace... You've got John Lord. John Lord was, you know, an incredible keyboard player. He sadly died a few years ago. which breaks my heart because I've seen Deep Purple both with and without him, and it's just not the same without him. He he was one of um, a generation that began to take the Hammond organ, which was essentially a church organ that had been used by jazz players, uh, been adapted by jazz players in the 50s and 60s, and the rock guys took those, uh, took those Hammond organs and um began to 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 distort them and do a lot of the same kind of things that the guitar players were doing with martial amps and they were they were using what was called a leslie speaker um which is sort of part and parcel with with, with, with what a hammond b3 player the b3 of course was the there are many models but the b3 was the the classic organ that would be used in in a rock and roll setting and there, again a lot of bands use this iron butterfly and uh Uh, Rare Earth, and, you know, many, many 1960s bands had uh, a Hammond organ as part of the setup, but there was none that used it as effectively as Deep Purple. It really was like a second guitar player, in my opinion. And Lord would kick that thing, he would you know, knock it around literally until it almost fell over. He would um, get all kinds of incredible growls and sounds out of it. But at the same time, like Blackmore, he was a highly trained musician, had a lot of classical training. And indeed, um, interestingly, the the third or fourth record uh, of Deep Purple's was it was a collaboration with a symphony orchestra in the uh, Royal Albert Hall in London. So, you know, bands, other bands were experimenting with orchestras and doing sort of, I guess you might say sort of progish ish or pseudo-classical kind of sounding stuff. So you've got Pace, a jazzer, with Blackmore. And by the way, Blackmore was also influenced by classical guitar, and uh, you hear that through a lot of his work. He would play Sleeves and other kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, what am I trying to say, Romantic era periods or Renaissance type of music. Um, and, and so Deep Purple always had this sort of character of one part classical, one part jazz, one part... Um, you know, uh, European Baroque, or, you know, I don't don't know exactly what period it is, Renaissance-type music, but then all thrown together with a hearty uh, sampling of of incredible riffs. So the first version of of Deep Purple, which is called Mach 1, they they were Machs, I don't know why, M-A-C-H. I don't know if it's like the speed of sound, Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3, but uh, there are three distinct periods of Deep Purple. I should mention also that and then Deep Purple broke up in the uh, around 76 and 77, and then reformed in 84, Mach 2 reformed, and then it's gone through a lot of changes of members. But throughout all of that, Ian Pace has been the one and only drummer in Deep Purple ever. And he has been from the very beginning until today. The band is still touring today, unbelievably. I think they might be doing some kind of a final farewell-type tour now. Um, but anyway... So, uh, they do these first couple albums. There's a great clip of the first version of Deep Purple uh, on what was called Playboy After Dark, which was a show that Hugh Hefner of Playboy, you have to remember at the beginning, you know, that he he created a television show. And at the beginning, Playboy was not just about naked women, although that was certainly a big part of it, but it was also about, you know, that, that... the idea of the Playboy was a liberated modern man who was also cultured. And so Hugh Hefner was a huge jazz fan. He was a huge music fan. He was into fashion. Uh, and so this show, Playboy After Dark, was, you know, and then you had the Playboy Clubs. That, that Playboy opened up a variety of clubs across the country. Of course, they had the Playboy Bunnies serving drinks, sort of like Hooters today, but supposed to be more classy. Um, although I don't really think when you've got women in tiny bunny outfits serving drinks, it's going to be all that much more classy. But, uh, <laughs> um, but they had music at these places. They had jazz music at, at the Playboy clubs. And Playboy After Dark, they had a variety of different kinds of bands, often new acts. So there's a great, um, a great clip on YouTube, which I will put on the show notes, of Deep Purple in their first incarnation doing um, Hush, uh, which was their first hit and it was a huge hit. You still hear it on the radio a lot today, um, which, and also a Neil Diamond song called Kentucky Woman. Uh, interestingly, both of those songs were cover tunes. So like many bands of the period, at that time they were exploring, and their first two hits are not their own original compositions, although they, were, they would quickly jump into that. So after a couple albums with this first version of the group, and by the way, Ian Pace's drumming already is establishing itself really incredibly on the song Hush. And if you check out Hush, uh, it's, got, it's got a lot of Hammond organ, really percussive. And it, that, you know you got kind of, I think there's some congas going and the guitar is chuck, chuck, chucking. And it's this very kind of kind of a groove. It's a great groove. And considering this was 1968 or 69, it's a very progressive, um, very forward thinking and already very kind of heavy Rock sound and it has that you know um, you will recognize it from the the vocal riff na 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 na, na. and uh, it's it's a fabulous song I remember hearing it a lot as a kid I didn't even know it was Deep Purple because it sounds so different from their later vocalist Ian Gillen, of course who was to come in Mach Two so um, but on Hush Ian Gillen is uh, Ian Pace rather the drummer is already ripping off. Of some incredible runs, sixteenth, sixteenth uh, note triplets, and really laying all that stuff down. And um, what's nice again about this period is that, really, for the first time, you know, if you think of the Beatles' their era um, when they were when they first came out, sixty four, drummers were still fairly constrained as far as what they were allowed to do on a record or what they were able to do without interfering with the recording process. You had to be careful about what you played. Um, by the late 60s, everyone is experimenting. Of course, you know, uh, the, the the counterculture is in full bloom, and uh, drugs are, you know, prevalent, and this young baby boom generation is really coming of age. So you hear that in the first couple of tunes of, of Deep Purple's, uh, their first couple of hits. I think they made three records with that lineup, and then they... Got rid of the the guitar player and the bass player. Sorry, the, the vocalist and the bass player. Uh, I love the bass. The first bass player's name, Nikki Simpa. Nikki Simpa. Yeah, if you had a guy named Nikki Simper in your band, I'd hate to say it, but it's not a good rock name. Let's just leave it there. In any case, they replaced those guys with a guy named Ian Gillen, who is. Uh, Left and come back to Deep Purple several times, but for the last big bunch of years he 's been the guy, and he really has been the voice of Deep Purple more than any any of the other singers um, and so Ian Gillen joined, and then Roger Glover joined, who also is still with the band today and has been there uh, practically as long as Ian pace um, and This was the formation of what we call Mach two that was really to become what the sound of Deep Purple would become in their in their greatest uh, period of, of commercial output. Um, so uh, this band goes on to release a bunch of really important pivotal records. And now, you know, the, the thing about Ian Gillen... Well, I'll talk about both Ian Gillen and, and Roger Glover, the bass player, because they, they both contributed a huge amount to the sound of the band. Ian Gillen had... A lot of people don't know this, but in the original production of Jesus Christ Superstar, which ran on the London stage of the West End because it was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, who were British composers, and they were not yet... Uh, established enough that they could, you know, just go to Broadway. They were working in London. And of course, you have the West End in London, which is the British version of Broadway, and many great productions saw their start there. So they composed Jesus Christ Superstar and they grabbed Ian Gillan, uh, who already was in Deep Purple, I'm pretty sure, uh, to play the role of Jesus. And if you listen to the original, what they call the original cast album of Jesus Christ Superstar, and you listen to the movie version, which starred Ted Neely as Jesus, it is just, in my opinion, it's a joke. It's not even a comparison. Ian Gillen is so intense as Jesus. He is so powerful. He just destroys. His voice is incredible. He's sort of got a lot of the same qualities, characteristics of his voice as Robert, as Robert Plant. Very high screaming voice. Of course, many singers of that period had that kind of a, a high wailing, screaming, ah! You know kind of thing going on, of course, taken from people like little Richard and james brown uh and and given a white British treatment, but no less soulful, intense, and powerful uh many singers did it badly, but Ian Gillen is truly uh in his prime was was one of the great uh rock and roll screamers and um so if you listen and go back to check out Jesus Christ superstar, it's unbelievable his performance, and hearing that just. I heard that also as a, as a kid. Maybe a couple years later, I was in middle school when I first heard it, but I was overwhelmed by, by his rock and roll performance. And of course, that is a, one of the first examples of a real heavy rock musical, and it's, it's fantastic, one of my all-time favorites. So he had done that. Of course, he, he could not stay in the show because he just did that album. Performing, and then the show went on to Broadway in New York, and he continued with deep purple but that 's a great way to hear Ian Gillen now Roger Glover, the bass player, he was one of the primary uh, creators of maybe what we would call the, the the fuzz bass or the distorted bass, and different bands had had that sound in the '60s but moving into the 70s, Roger Glover sort of uh, really captured just the ridiculous unbelievably huge distorted bottom end. So, in essence, th- with this version of Deep Purple, you have four front people who all kind of sound like uh, you know, like they're playing through a Marshall stack. You got Richie Blackmore who is playing through a Marshall stack, John Lord playing through a ridiculously uh uh, uh you know, beefed up distorted Hammond organ and growling Leslie speaker. Uh, Roger Glover with his his super fuzzed out and bass tone, and then Ian Gillen, whose voice sounds like it's going through a Marshall stack. And then behind them, of course, Ian Pace. So this band, this version of Deep Purple, literally, and this is Spinal Tap, I love it, there's a Spinal Tap reference here, but they were they were literally literally called the world's loudest band. And uh, there's, there's sort of a joke reference in Spinal Tap. You know, the Spinal Tap was called the world's loudest band as well, which kind of seems ridiculous by today's standards, because any concert you go to will make your ears bleed. But back then, you know, the sound systems were evolving and Um, I guess, you know, for a number of years, that was sort of their trademark. If you went to a Deep Purple concert, it was going to be louder than anything else. And one of my favorite lines, by the way, from, uh, that Ian Gillen says over the microphone on the famous Made in Japan live album is, which is the one that first got me into Deep Purple, uh, he says, yes, uh, can we, uh... I need a little more, uh, little more on the monitors. In fact, uh, can we have everything a little louder than everything else? <laughs> Which sort of encapsulates rock and roll, right? You know, that it's just, it's louder, louder, and, and more louder. More loud. None more loud. All right. So, moving forward. This, this version of the band then really become uh, rock superstars. They release a series of records, starting with uh, In Rock, uh, and which shows the the five guys their their faces uh, like uh, in Mount Rushmore. So Deep Purple in Rock, of course. There's the rock title, and this album includes a bunch of great great tunes. Uh, opening with Speed King. Now Speed King, of course, Ian Pace was a Ludwig endorser. Uh, by this point, he's he was he played with Ludwig for many years. Now I think he's with Pearl, uh, but um, he. That was he was one of the great tradition of all those British drummers. That once Ringo switched over to Ludwig, they all had to have Ludwig. So Ginger Baker, John Bonham, um, uh, Ian Pace for sure. Uh, I'm not sure uh, Mitch Mitchell if he was a Ludwig user. Not sure on that, but uh, it certainly became. uh, And not only British drummers, I mean you know American drummers. I mean Ludwig was was probably the world's most popular brand post Ringo for at least. Uh, 15 years uh, into the late 70s, uh, with very few competitors. So, of course, Speed King is um, the pedal that was created by Ludwig, uh, and it was a very popular pedal in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and I think it's kind of back now. It's an unusual pedal. I had one, didn't really like it, uh, because it doesn't have a heel plate. It just has the foot footboard, and that's it, and it's an unusual kind of way to play it. It also had two springs instead of one, Alright, I'm geeking out here. But um, you know, I'm sure I'm assuming that Ian plays paid one played one. And uh so, uh Speed King, totally kick ass tune. Uh it it's 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 that first lineup just exploding. Fast up tempo. Great guitar riff, great chorus, um, really intense. And you know, that's another thing is that in addition to writing guitar riffs, I mean, Richie Blackmore wrote a lot of these songs, and the the songwriting uh, was just unbelievable. And and now all the album, you know, most of the records that they would put out were, were primarily original tunes. And, you know, this is a cool thing that a lot of bands did. In the 70s, they just credited the songs to everybody. So, like, you know, Lennon and McCartney credited everything that the Beatles did other than the George Harrison compositions and the occasional Ringo uh, uh, contribution. But it didn't matter whether Lennon wrote it or McCartney wrote it, they just said Lennon and McCartney. And in, in the case of this version of the band, everybody was equally credited, uh, which I think is a great thing, of course, being a drummer, um, because drummers, often our contributions are ignored, right? So, I'm taking a very long time to get through this. I hope you don't mind my very highly detailed <laughs> explanations of all this. But um, another song from that album, "Child in Time," uh, was um, a, a. It was a feature of Ian Gillen's, and he just literally does this kind of screaming thing where he starts with a soft moan and the band builds and there's this great organ riff underneath him. And until he gets to this really high wail and then this unbelievable scream. And it's like, again, you know, today something like that is maybe more common or it's a sound that our ears are used to hearing. But, um, when this came out, you know, in rock, I think is from what, 70 or seventy seventy. This was, this was, this knocked people out. And, uh, I think you know I love it. Also, there's a song on this album called "Living Wreck," and uh, that was the name of my first high school band. That was a Black Sabbath cover band. Our name was Living Wreck, named after a Deep Purple song. So, anyway, um, anyway, 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 moving along. Uh, the band also wrote Fireball, and that was the next next record. This version of Deep Purple, 1971, and. Interestingly, the song Fireball is the one and only time that Ian Pace plays the double bass, and I strongly recommend you check it out. I don't know why he never got into double bass. I would assume, and I'm going to say that this is one of the other things I love about his playing, other than his ridiculously fast singles, uh, is is his... ridiculously fast bass drum foot and incredible control and i would say more than any of the other drummers of the british invasion uh ian pace had a super ridiculous uh right foot well he's a left-handed drummer so left foot i should say bass drum foot uh i would say honestly that only buddy rich had a better and stronger foot single foot than ian pace um at least until the modern era um it's fantastic. His solo, his drum solo uh, on the live album "Made in Japan," has shows off all of this stuff. His his chops were are just incredible. And single stroke rolls. He used a lot of singles. I don't hear a lot of uh, heavy paradiddle stuff, but great use of singles. A lot of accents, um, ghost notes, and um, you know. So, but fireball. Just to stick with that, not jumping around too much. Um, there's uh, um, a, a, a uh, just it's this double bass intro, then you know, and it's, it's it's like the best double bass playing you've ever heard for that period, better than you know, like a Cozy Powell, uh, Ginger Baker, Louis Belson, all rolled up into one. And then he never played double bass again. I mean, go figure, he never used it live in his setup. I think maybe he uses a double pedal now, but I um i've never i've looked i think last year he did something with some younger italians who basically kind of hired him in tribute and played a bunch of deep purple songs with him and he did do the double bass intro for fireball so i'll see if i've got that and i'll put it up but the tune fireball unbelievable totally happening uh, again um great chorus and just a, an amazing rock tune, pop rock tune. Also on this uh, record is Strange Kind of Woman, which became one of their signature songs. It's about a guy who falls in love with a prostitute who doesn't love him back. And then she promptly decides she loves him as she's dying. So, uh, And it's kind of a shuffle rock boogie. And, of course, uh, The Mule is on this. And The Mule is actually a song about the devil, I'm pretty sure, and how the devil takes over this the singer's life whoever's the person telling the story and the mule would be the song that ian pace would do his big solo on and of course like all or many rock drummers of the period um, he uh you know would uh, take a long unaccompanied solo uh i personally think his solos are far more interesting than the likes of carl palmer uh i i dare i say john bonham um i was never you know i thought john Bonham solos are cool but they're a little bit repetitive they go on and on The pace just went from one amazingly interesting idea to another and just i just love the way he played carl palmer to me uh, if we 're going to talk about these the drummers of this period who would take long solos ginger Baker nah, I'm not i 've never been an enormous fan of ginger baker 's soloing thought he was came up with some cool groove ideas i 'm sure some of you will disagree with me on these things, but these are my preferences and it 's my podcast so i 'm going i 'm going share um, but the the just the incredible machine gun sort of uh you know cascade of notes that came out of Ian Pace, the cool ideas, and this really goes back again to how he approached rock music. He he really approached it with a jazzer's sensibility, and unlike the rest of those guys, I mean, I guess Mitch Mitchell had had some jazz training. John Bonham, from listening to his solos, you can hear him take some jazz ideas, but Ian Pace really sounds like a jazz drummer, um, and has just so many great improvisational ideas in his solos, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's just a pleasure. And you could really hear the Buddy influence. He, you, he really sounds like a rocker's version of Buddy Rich, I think, more than any of those other drummers. Uh, the same kind of excitement, the same kind of like eye popping, blistering chops. So you could hear that on the Made in Japan, Made in Japan record, which we are getting up to. Um, so in 1972, uh, Deep Purple releases Machine Head. You know, you're getting an idea in rock. Uh, Fireball, Machine Head, you know, these are very hard, heavy titles to go along with the, the style of the band's music. Um, and it it's uh, its sort of... Machine Head, you could say, would be the equivalent of Led Zeppelin 4 or Black Sabbath's Paranoid, perhaps. It's sort of the album that is um, most iconic of the band's uh, period. But personally, I was never a fan of Machine Head, uh, because Machine Head... Was the album that they toured with when they made Made in Japan. Uh, And so you've got songs like Highway Star, uh, Space Truckin', um, and uh, um, Smoke on the Water, of course. And these are sort of the biggest three hits off this record. Really, Smoke on the Water was only the one to actually ever get any airplay. Maybe Highway Star a little bit. But in my opinion, this album came out in 72, or rather late 71. And the. The following tour they did—it came out in 72, actually—the the, the following tour they did, which was 72, 73, absolutely really showcased what made this version of Deep Purple so great, and that was their live show. And if we're talking about jazz, um, you know, one of the things that I— that I just love is was their ability to create group improvisational jams. And they did this, like so many other bands, you could trace this, of course, back to the era of, of jazz itself, of working on ideas and developing these jams over time live and really going for it and trying new things on every show. Led Zeppelin is known for this. They did a fabulous job of it. Um The Doors, another great band that would do long jams. And so often the live albums of these groups are what I preferred because I guess I always just liked that living on the edge kind of sensibilities. And it's one of the reasons that when sort of 1980 arose and you know, Van Halen turns into Ozzy's solo career, uh, and then into hair metal. I lost all interest in rock music because I felt like what I enjoyed about it, which was yes, there was the attitude, there was the the loud riffs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I enjoyed about it was the improvisational jamming, and that was virtually gone by the '80s. There was there was it was purely um, a commercial pursuit, and there were some good rock bands in the '80s. But uh, my interest in the '80s turned more towards punk and new wave because it was more stripped down and had that that um, you know, and prog rock, I should say, which was very heavily about improvisation. Uh, But so my metal years really were the 70s. And I I listened to a lot of metal in the 80s, but most of it was digging deeper into the 70s canon uh, and getting to know a lot of these bands and, and getting into the prog thing. And that, of course, led me to jazz. So go figure. But I think even as a jazz musician, I still love Deep Purple. And Made in Japan, let's just talk about that for one second. It is in my opinion, and I've said this before and I will go on record and say it again, is one of my Desert Island discs. And it is, you know, and I'm a jazz... I listen a lot to jazz music and all kinds of stuff nowadays, but I will go back and listen to Made in Japan over and over and over and over again. And one of the, you know, I've had a few great close call moments with Ian Pace. I've met him actually twice, which I'll talk about at the end of the podcast. But um, in addition to to that... Um, I had a chance to be part of a British series about the history and evolution of rock. And I got to, they interviewed Ian Pace. Uh, I was one of only 20 drummers, and the list was, like, ridiculous. Steve Smith, Bernard Purdy, uh, Chad Smith, um, Ginger Baker, uh, you know, Billy Cobham. I mean, and I'm, like, one of 20 or so people they interviewed, which I was, it was a true honor. But one of the things, I mentioned that Ian Pace was my idol and it was an interesting I'll, I'll talk more about this near the end of the podcast because i want to save it but made in japan um that was the album that got me when i was nine years old and it is just truly a magnificent recording child in time with it with ian, ian Gillan's featuring his screams live version is that highway star is the opening of the show brutal in your face Uh, It's about, you know, 70s. It's about, like, my car. I have the baddest fucking car on the road, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to race it to the ground. Okay, the lyrics are stupid. But what rock metal band had lyrics that were deep and introspective, not too many. You know, think about a lot of Led Zeppelin lyrics. They're just about sort of phantasmical, you know, mystical lands. So I wouldn't say they, you know, I mean, they're cool. They sound great. But, um, you know, Heavy Metal was not known for its uh, deeply poetic lyrics. Although, again, some of you might argue with me on this. But um, regardless, I didn't, I was not listening to Deep Purple for the lyrics. I was listening to Deep Purple for the way it made me feel, for the way it punched me in the stomach, for the way it made me just want to like go outside and run around in circles because I was so excited by the intensity and the adrenaline of what was happening, right? Um... So Smoke on the Water, If you know, I think the the live version is much better. Like I said, I've, I've listened to the song many times. I don't think it's one of Deep Purple's best. Uh, it just happened that that riff caught everybody's attention, so I'll move on past that. There's a long drum solo, The Mule. They do Strange Kind of Woman. On Strange Kind of Woman, Richie Blackmore and Ian Gillen, that's the one about the prostitute who dies. They do this little jam in the middle, uh, and... Uh, uh, the, the, where the, the guitar player plays and then the singer sings and Zeppelin would do this kind of stuff between Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Uh, but I think the way Deep Purple did it was pretty cool. Then there's the song Lazy. Uh, Lazy was one of many kind of blues jams that was looking back to an earlier part of Deep Purple's career. Um, you know, sort of what we call like a boogie shuffle, right? So it's a shuffle, but it's like a rock shuffle. And every band was doing these kind of things. Again, I like the riff. I like the way Deep Purple did it. They they would feature, you know, this version is 10 minutes long. Every song on here is like, you know, the shortest song is Highway Star. That's six minutes and 43 seconds. Child in Time, 12 minutes. I mean, I loved this kind of stuff growing up. This was what I love. And uh, so Lazy's, you know, a 10 and a half minute song. They're going for it. They're jamming. And the band, they just absolutely captured light in a bottle go on youtube and look up some documentaries about made in japan and you'll hear hear every great rock musician just go on and on about this album and why it's so special and so incredible and so worth checking out and listening to um the last track however is what i want to talk about which is space Truckin'. again stupid song let's go trucking around the globe or around the galaxy um you know it's absolutely ridiculous lyrics. However, it's a really great, powerful rock song, great rock riff, uh, maybe a little over the top. But what happens is, this version of the song, which was, uh, I had been on Machine Head, is like, it's 19 minutes and 54 seconds. And it is, you know, if you want any, if if you ever wanted Jazz Odyssey, but done well, not as a joke, This is this is it. The band After playing the song, which maybe is the first four or five minutes, they kick into this long instrumental jam that is just incredible. And it's actually based on a song called Mandrake Root that was from one of their first couple albums with the original lineup, but they have now extended it. And everybody does they do the most interesting things. They're getting the most unusual sounds out of their instruments. They break it down to halftime because space trucking is like ba do ba do ba do ba so they break it down, well the jam is like doom 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 and it just sets up like a almost a John Coltrane style droning riff that then. Uh, you know, the band sort of solos over They break it down to halftime They break it down super quiet To where you could hear a pin drop they, they bring it back up You know, now remember This album is called Made in Japan It was it was recorded on a Japanese tour in 1972 And the Japanese audiences Were big fans of this kind of music But they were different than European or American audiences And they did not know what to make Of what was happening and This is long before cheap, cheap Trick at Budokan So what? What's so cool is, you know, they sit very politely during the show. You can, and then you know they get into it. But uh, you know, at the end of this like nineteen minute fifty four second version of Space Trucking, the song, (laughs) the song ends. And there is like silence for about ten seconds before anybody starts clapping. Because they didn't they don't even know what just hit them. It's 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 fantastic. And Ian Pace just does the most interesting uh, riffs with the bass player and the way the band works together. It's to me, it's it's because it's improvised. It that's what makes it so exciting for me. I mean, there's a lot of prog bands that have 20 minute songs, 25 minute songs. Yes, had an album, Tales of Topographic Oceans, that had four songs on a double album, and I love that album. But they even the, you know, most of that prog rock, there would really was not a lot of true group improvisation. Everything was structured, everything was orchestrated, and so in my mind, once I learned the song, or I knew the song, I was always going to hear the song played the same way. I would go out and get bootlegs and whatever. But these bands like Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, uh, Jimi Hendrix, who I you know, think are some of the prime examples, Cream jammed, but it wasn't on the level that these that these other bands I just mentioned were, were jamming. Who did some cool jams, but Pete Thompson wasn't really a great soloist. That was not his forte. So they were limited because um, you know, Entwhistle and, Mo- and uh, Keith Moon were more the improvisationalists in the band, and Townsend would hold it down. But uh, that, that's why I think Deep Purple. You know, I'm not saying anybody's better than anybody else, but it really struck me uh, as great. So after this album, after Made in Japan, the success of this group started to get to them. They released one more album. 1973 called who do we think we are which i think is a cruelly underrated album And the reason why is that the band made this record the the big hit from this album is called woman from tokyo uh which of course became one of deep purple's biggest hits they still do it today in fact but the band broke up before they could tour on this record and so nobody knows about this record i would say that other than made in japan this is probably my favorite deep purple record well and then the one after it, of course. Uh, but Woman from Tokyo, and there's a bunch of really great blues rock kind of tunes, really getting almost more into the bluesy aspect. There's a couple of places where John uh, John Lord starts to fool around with synthesizers as we get into that era, and it's just a fantastically cool record. The songs are, you know, more on the five, six-minute uh, version. Beautifully written executed this band was at its peak and sadly they never got to tour on this record so blackmore leaves in a huff and he goes off to start uh richie blackmore's rainbow with ronnie james dio another favorite band of mine at least their first few albums also went in a lot of the same directions as deep purple and how do you land two vocalists who are two of the greatest rock vocalists and richie blackmore more great riffs right but ian pace stays with deep purple and they get two new guys in the band uh, they get uh David Coverdale, who most people know from Whitesnake, And they get a bass player named Glenn Hughes, who uh, has been in a million kind of all-star bands today. He was in Black Sabbath for a while. Uh, He was in, uh, I can't remember the name of that project, with Jason Bonham. And uh, um, he's done a lot of great stuff, Glenn Hughes. And they both were singers. So for the first time, Deep Purple had two singers. And they would go on to produce what is arguably another of just the greatest rock albums. And that album is called Burn. And the song Burn, which opens up, opens up the album burn is probably my absolute favorite piece of Ian Pace drumming. And there are, there are many out there that would, would agree with me. If you don't know the song, go, you could see the live version of it on YouTube from Cal jam, which was from 19, uh, I think 70, 74. Cause, uh, yeah, from 74 when deep purple was one of the headlining bands with this, with the Mach three lineup. And, um, on this version of burn, it it it's a, it's about a woman who it's sort of like Carrie, a woman who gets spurned, and so she causes fire and, and, and uh, brimstone to rain from the heavens, and she burns everything down, and uh, and it's uh it is it is such a powerful, unbelievably in your face track uh just this new band like exploding out of the gate not going to be messed around with anybody i'm sorry i take this back richie blackmore was still in deep purple at this point he did not he was still there which is why the riff on burn is incredible he didn't leave until 76 so they made two albums with this configuration and i I apologize ian gillen the singer left and roger glover the bass player was fired that's who left and Mach three was still with blackmore and then with Uh, with Coverdale and Glenn Hughes. Uh, Glenn Hughes brought this weird kind of funk element. He really was into, like, funk and soul music and wanted to take the band in that direction. So this album has, and the way he sings, is more of a funky edge. I was never a huge fan of his singing. David Coverdale, um, pretty damn great rock singer. Uh, A lot of people compare him to Robert Plant. I don't think he sounds like Plant. But um, in any case, uh, this song, Burn, Ian Pace is basically filling the whole way through the song, but it's not like Keith Moon where it just sounds kind of all over the place. It is so on point and so fierce and so fiery. And it's really a culmination of of that era of what rock, you know, I think the pinnacles of great rock music, great songwriting, great singing, great guitar riffs. The riff on the song Burn is one of my, it's one of my all-time favorite guitar riffs. Um, So onward uh there's a bunch of good songs on this record uh you fool no one ian pace does this cool latinesque cowbell thing um and it's just like he kept coming up with amazing idea after amazing idea never sacrificing the groove even with all of all of uh the, the the fills and and other stuff that he's playing um just the 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 groove is right there and he's embellishing it all over the place. And another thing I loved about him was that, you know, the way he used his his Ludwigs, the, his sounds were fantastic. Very distinctive, very much like John Bonham. Uh, I didn't really like Ginger Baker's Ludwig sounds. They were very muddy and tubby. Uh, uh, the uh, Mitch Mitchell, pretty good. But... I didn't get a sense that he was on top of his drum sound as much as Ian Pace, and you know the, the stuff he did with Hendrix was in such a short period of time—three years maybe—and Pace had a lot of time to explore. And again, these these drums—I'm pretty sure he's using a 24-inch kick, maybe a 26, but I think it's a 24. Um, and the the sounds on these mid '70s Deep Purple records are just classic Ludwig. Great, they had great engineers, great producers. You know, everything was just really, really rocking. Um, so this this lineup did two records, um, Stormbringer, and then they made another album called Made in Europe, which was the equivalent to Made in Japan. Um, great album, live album, but not as focused. The band was already kind of losing it uh, in terms of diff- people going in different directions with different agendas. Uh, that's when Richie Blackmore quits and leaves to form Rainbow. And for the first few Rainbow albums, you really see the distinct um, progression from where Deep Purple was at, and, and he went more in the mystical direction, because Ronnie James Dio was into all that kind of mysticism and medieval sort of imagery and singing about knights and kings and all that kind of stuff, uh, which makes sense as to why Dio then fit in well with Black Sabbath when he left Rainbow. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going down rabbit hole upon rabbit hole here. So, um, I just want to say, at the, to, to, to cap this off, the few times I had the chance to see Ian Pace and to meet Ian Pace, because, of course, he continued his career. Um, the Deep Purple had one more iteration with uh, the guitarist Tommy Bolin, uh, and that ended because Tommy Bolson died of a drug, drug overdose. Tommy Bolin, I'm sorry. Tommy Bolin. Amazing almost fusion guitar player. He'd played with Billy Cobham and a lot of other people. Uh, But by then things were just, it was, it was rock and roll overkill. Everybody was doing too, way too many drugs. And um, you know, this is about 75, I think was the last uh, album, official Deep Purple album for a number of years. So Ian Pace leaves. He does some cool projects, Um, did one with John Lord and a guy named uh, John Ashton, Pace Ashton Lord, or maybe it was Graham, I can't remember what Ashton's first name was. He then, um, actually, as, um... He played with Gary Moore for a couple of years, and he also was in the earliest versions of Whitesnake. Whitesnake, again, David Coverdale, alumni of Deep Purple, started Whitesnake, I think, around 79. And uh, Ian Pace is on, I think, three different White Snake albums. For two years, he played with the British guitarist Gary Moore, always kind of playing in these rock, uh, heavy rock bands. That was his thing. And then in 84, he rejoined Deep Purple, and they put out Perfect Strangers, and that began sort of the reformation of the Mach 2 era. So Ian Gillen was back, Roger Glover was back. Uh, I saw that band a couple of times. I loved Perfect Strangers, but it already, to me, was missing what had made Deep Purple great, which that it was the 80s, and it was much more of a uh, commercial production. There was less jamming. They did do space trucking and stuff, but it just didn't, was missing that. And Ian Pace's drumming now had been corralled substantially uh, in other words you um, you he's he's playing the role much safer, keeping the fills much you know, everything's much more contained. Probably they're starting to cut things to a click track, although I'm not positive about that. But regardless, uh, it doesn't have the same intensity it did in the 70s. Um, and, you know, why should it? He was changing and evolving uh, and playing differently. So that's perfectly fine. But to me, the, the real uh, uh, quality of the period was lost. And, and so I enjoyed the shows in the 80s, but they weren't what the records and, you know, it wouldn't have been the same as, as had I seen them in the seventies. Um, and so the two times I got to meet Ian Pace, this is pretty exciting. And, and I'll talk a little bit about this, uh, British, um, uh, British show. Um, the first it was when I did an event with Royal Crown Review. Now, Royal Crown Review is my band from the '90s. I was with the band for almost 20 years, and what was exciting about Royal Crown Review was that it was a swing band, but we were writing original music, and we brought a lot of rock and roll energy to the project. We 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 brought the fierce intensity of the music we had grown up with, so punk rock and ska and jazz and rhythm and blues, uh, but also you know we we gave swing this real intense edge. And I, you know, in a way, the way I approached that band was a lot like Ian Pace. If you consider that Ian Pace had been a jazz drummer who then brought his jazz chops into a rock situation, I was a rock drummer. You know, I began my years playing in bands that played a lot of Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and Hendrix and these kind of things. And so I was a rock drummer who now brought his rock intensity to a jazz slash swing project. And so I felt a lot of affinity with Ian Pace because I felt like I had permission to sort of bring those two worlds of jazz and rock together while at the same time, you know, um, paying tribute to where I had come from. So I didn't, I, I I played with, I you know, there's a lot of chops and big band stuff and I got a nice big solo in RCR. But at the same time, I tried to keep, pay respect to the jazz origins and history and traditions of that band. So, um, I, you know, a lot of the fills, a lot of the, just the approach, my entire approach in that band, and the way I still play to this day when it's more intense kinds of music, I'm thinking about Ian Pace. And we did a gig, uh, this is a pretty cool story, that the, you, you remember the millennium, well, those of you, when when it went from 1999 to 2000, there were a lot of huge events that happened. And we as Royal Crown got hired to play uh, the um, millennial party for the organization PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, who, you know, were, you don't hear that much about them these days, but they were very outspoken about animal cruelty, about, uh, you know, farm, factory farms, about uh, fur coats, and all that kind of stuff. So their party was an enormous affair. Um, I, as I said, there, there were huge parties to celebrate the end of the millennium. This, of course, was before 9-11. There was a ton of money being thrown around uh, in all the entertainment industries. And they literally rented out the entire back lot of Paramount, which is a covers several acres many acres in Hollywood and turn the entire thing into their party and you'd be walking down the back street of New York or you know uh, the high rises in Chicago or some period uh, a- area kind of neighborhood or whatever and uh, there would be the carving station set up well I guess there we didn't have meat there because it was pita but you know the the hors d'oeuvres and and uh, and people with, with walking around with trays of drinks just spread out over this huge area and they had a a sit down dinner for 5,000 people. 5,000 people sitting at round 10 tops. So you can imagine what an, an enormous event this was. And if, I think PETA was sort of much more prominent at that time. You don't hear that much about PETA anymore. Maybe you do. I don't know. But in any case, we performed at the event. Um, and also performing at the event were the B-52s and the Pretenders. We had done a tour with them the year before, 1998, and they were both vegan bands. So they had been um, you know, invited to play because they, they, they wanted to feature artists that were vegetarian. Uh, so I think it was because of them that, that we got pulled into the festival. But the, the headlining event, the highlight of this, was Paul McCartney... Uh, His wife, Linda, had just died a year or so earlier, and she was um, the—they had created an award in her honor, the Linda McCartney Award. She, of course, famously was a vegetarian animal rights activist. Uh, She had a a line of vegetarian products you could get in the supermarket, in the frozen department. Um, And Paul himself was a vegetarian, had been for a long time. Paul McCartney's latest record that had just come out was called Race with the Devil, which is the name of a rockabilly tune, and it was a tribute record to all of his childhood heroes, the songs that he had grown up listening to, which were a lot of rockabilly and early rock and roll songs. The musicians he selected to play with him on this record included David Gilmour of Pink Floyd on guitar and Ian Pace from Deep Purple on drums. So, um, I was extremely excited because, you know, I had gotten into Made in Japan around 1974 or 75 and it was now 1998 and 99, sorry. And I was going to have the chance to meet my hero. So 25 years later. Um, and uh, I talked to the tour manager of the, of the B-52s and he hooked me up and I went to Ian's trailer and we got to, we got to say hello. And that was really exciting. Uh, let him know who I was, and he, he couldn't have been kinder or more gracious. So then that night, and I've got another great story about David Gilmour that I won't tell now, but I, we were watching the B-52s uh, perform, and uh, David Gilmour happened to be standing right next to me. And I, I think I mentioned this, I was in a Pink Floyd tribute band when I was in college in the late 80s, And I I sort of tried to talk to him and make small talk and mentioned to him what a big fan I was, and he had nothing, wanted nothing to do with me, sort of sniffed up his nose and looked away. So, uh, so much for meeting your heroes sometimes. Probably was not the right environment for that. But anyway, regardless, uh, second time I met Ian Pace, flash forward a bunch more years later to 2011— Uh, So another, say, 12 years later down the road, I'm living here in New York, and my wife, God bless her, gets me uh, tickets, gets us tickets to see Deep Purple at the Beacon Theater, and they are... playing with uh, symphonies, they're doing this whole tour with symphony orchestra. So I'm sort of like, well, I don't know how they're going to sound, I don't know how Gillen's voice is going to be, this and that and the other. And um, I also, though, I knew uh, the guy that was managing Ian Gillen's solo project in LA. So I called him up and I managed to get backstage passes. And um, the show was awesome, actually. It was great. They sounded great. Steve Morse was playing guitar. I love Steve Morse. He's no Richie Blackmore, but uh, it it was good. And John Lord, of course, was gone by then. But they had Ian Gillen, Roger Glover, and Ian Pace, and... I got to go backstage again and meet him and gave him a copy of my book that I had recently completed, uh, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, the project I did with Zorro. And uh, I I actually had a chance to write an article about this experience for Modern Drummer in 2011. And it's hilarious what he said. Uh, He said, Now I've got something to read on the bus. Thanks very much. You know, so he was again very understated, very just the nicest, most humble person, just like, you know, the, the neighbor in the neighborhood next door. I mean, it could, couldn't could be more of a down-to-earth dude. And uh, so, you know, it 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 was uh, it was just a pleasure to meet him, and I feel like uh, I can check one item off the bucket list. I got to meet my very first drum hero and spend a little time with him and at least give him the book. I don't know if you ever read it, uh, but at least I had the chance to do that. I'd like to put a quick coda on this by uh, sharing about this this uh, presentation on Sky Arts I was involved with last year, um, as I as I mentioned, uh, the, the uh, it's, I believe it's called the Art of Drumming. Uh, it, unfortunately, it has yet to air here on in on U.S. soil because of licensing issues. But it's all about um, the uh, it's a four four one hour specials about drumming and the drum set broken into different categories. So they brought me in as kind of the historical expert, talked a lot about the history and evolution of drumming and rock around the clock and different kinds of things like that. But I mentioned to the director and the writer that I was a big fan of Ian Pace. That was one of my earliest influences. And they said, Oh, we have interviewed Ian Pace for this show. And, um, so what they had me do was play along with highway star, um, I played along with Highway Star and then they wrote to me and they said, well, what we're going to do is we've got you playing along to Highway Star, uh, Chad Smith playing along to Highway Star and Ian Pace playing along to Highway Star. And we're going to cut back and forth and show the three of you uh, being involved, uh, you know, your, your different interpretations of the song and you hear the song, you know, in the background. Uh, I was so excited about this. That, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't wait. And they sent me, uh, eventually the program came out, it aired, it got a lot of great reviews. A lot of my friends in the UK and Europe saw it, wrote to me and said, great job. Um, And, uh, and I'll put a link to like the trailer, although I'm not in the trailer. But (laughs) I went to this, you know, I looked through four hours of stuff, watched four hours of this thing. Uh, only to find that they had uh, edited me out of the Highway Star montage, and I ended up on the cutting room floor. So, uh, ha! Them's the breaks, I guess. That's that's showbiz, but it was a, it was a great project to be a part of. So that's my tribute to Ian Pace. I hope that after listening to this, you're inspired to go check out some more of the recordings and videos. I will put definitely um, some really uh, some nice clips up. There are some incredible. Uh, the Made in Japan. A few years ago, a video surfaced of another of those concerts in Japan. Not the exact ones from that recording, but that band at that moment in time. And it's pretty amazing to be able to watch what you're hearing on the record. The sound, of course, is not as good as the record. But, um... That's it, and I hope that you uh, take a little more time out of your life to check out Ian Pace. He's worth checking out. Uh, just his, everything he's done in his career has been quality, top-notch, and uh, absolutely fantastic. So thanks for listening to The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource, and have a wonderful, wonderful day.